You know, I think when we think of that term, our God is a jealous God, we tend to think of it in earthly terms. Like, for example, um, if a friend of yours gets a job or has a position that you really believe you should have gotten, you find yourself jealous, right? Jealous of what they have. Or, for example, if you have some folks that you do life with and now all of a sudden they have come into a windfall of money and now they are living a different lifestyle than you and your family and they can do and buy their kids things that you can't do and buy, you might find yourself jealous. But what's interesting is that God himself and his word ascribes the word jealous to him. And so because he does that, we know it can't be an evil or a bad thing. C.H. Spurgeon says it like this, Let it be remembered then that jealousy like anger is not evil in itself, or it could never be ascribed to God. His jealousy is ever a pure and holy flame. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at some scripture in the context on what, how did God mean that? And then once we understand what God meant, the natural response for us is how do we apply that? Because as we've been walking through these names of God, every time the goal is when you walk out of here, you have a new thing to apply to your life. As you learn a new characteristic or a nature about God, you learn how to apply it. And so before we get going and dive into scripture, I'm going to open us up with prayer. Father God, I just thank you for this time for us to be together. And Lord, this, this particular topic can create confusion, and I know that that is what the enemy would like. But I ask today, God, that you would come, you would give us clarity, you would speak truth into this situation today, and that when we walk out of here, we would have a clearer picture of you and who you are. God, I love you. I thank you for this opportunity. Bind anything in me that is not of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this particular word jealous we're talking about, in the Hebrew, it's pronounced kanah. And it is only, this particular Hebrew word is only found five times in the Old Testament, and every time, it's always associated with God, and it's always in reference to idolatry. And idolatry is when you worship anything other than God. We're going to start in Exodus 20, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. But I want to kind of give you a little segue what's happened to get them to Exodus 20. Because God went in and he freed the Israelites out of Egypt. And he brought them three months later to Exodus 20. And they find themselves at the desert of Sinai. And they didn't just show up there overnight. It took them three months. And in the process, they witnessed unbelievable miracles about this God who just saved them. They watched God part the Red Sea, so much so that when they crossed it, the bed of the sea was dry. They watched God bring water from a rock. They watched God leave manna on the ground like dew every morning and rain down quail so they could have meat. And here they are three months later at the desert of Sinai, and they are setting up camp at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so as they're setting up camp, Moses, who is the leader, he goes up the mountain and God begins to offer him and his people a deal of a lifetime. This is what he says. He says, I have been faithful to the house of Jacob and to the Israelites. And so here's what I want to do. I want to make a covenant with you guys. And here's what a covenant is. A covenant is three things. It's the promise of what God's going to do. It's going to tell the Israelites what they need to do. And then there's the consequences if they don't do it. So a co covenant has three parts. And he says, I want to make a covenant with you guys. 
and I want to make you my treasured possession. In the King James, that phrase says, peculiar treasure. And I thought, that is like us. Aren't we a peculiar treasure to God? I just love that thought. He said, I want to make you a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Now you go back and you talk to your people and you see if they want in. Moses goes back and he gets his elders together. Because just like here at Westridge Church, we have a team of elders, just like Moses did, and we have a team of elders that oversee for the whole body of this church. And at the time, there was over 2 million people camping at the foot of this mountain, and they had a team of elders, and he gets them together, and he says, here's what God has offered us. And I want you to know, there wasn't just Egypt. There was all of these other nations that God could have chosen. But back in Genesis, he had made a covenant to Abraham. And he is a God of his word every time. And so Moses tells them everything that God said. He says, what do you want to do? And the Bible says that they all agree together. You tell him, we will obey him. We will follow him. We're in. Moses goes back up the mountain, and he tells God the good news. And God says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to descend on this mountain in three days. And I'm going to speak loud enough so that everyone will know they can fully trust you. So between now and the three days, I want you to go back down. And I want you to get everyone to consecrate themselves. So he does. He goes down the mountain. Three days later, it's the morning. And all of a sudden, I don't know what you guys are like when it comes to crazy storms. Um, but like when I just watch unbelievable things that happen in the sky and storms, instead of running for shelter, my nature is to continue to look out the window, which I'm certain is never wise, you know, if a tornado. But I just find, like just watching the majesty and just the power and awesomeness of God, I just find it captivating in an unsafe way. But I just do. And, and so here they are. It's the third morning, and all of a sudden, this is the wake-up call they get. These clouds begin to come around the top of Mount Sinai, and it begins to thunder and lightning, and then a loud trumpet begins to blast. And I imagine that it is way louder than the Bartow County warning system that we have here. My mother lives next to a siren, and it is loud at her house. And so just for fun, we usually call her when it's going off and going, Hey, do you hear the siren going? Because we know they do. It's right, literally right next to her house. That's a mean daughter, but we just think that's funny. I don't know why we do that. And, And so here they are. This incredible scene is happening. And then it says that God descends on the mountain in fire. And smoke begins to billow like a furnace. What a wake-up call. I mean, you know, don't you just sometimes wish in life for a sign from God? If that's not a sign to tell you to move, you know. So Moses gets all his people together, and he brings them up to the foot of the mountain. And this is really, I just love this part because it says, and then Moses spoke, and God answered. I just, I just love that because here's what I think. I think when you guys speak, that God will answer you too. I just love being reminded of that. So here he is. He's speaking out. God answers. He tells him to come up. Moses leaves everybody down below. He goes back up the mountain, and God says two things. Go and tell the people, do not try to come up the mountain and see me. Don't do that. If you do, they will perish. Tell them that. And when you come back up, bring your brother Aaron, the priest. So he goes back down, and he says, listen, don't try to come up this mountain. And I want you to know, I am one of the people, if I had been there, he would have been saying that too, because it would have took everything in me not to want to come up there and sneak a peek of what God looked like. I thought that word would have been for me. That's good to know. And so he, he tells them that they go back up. And then we find in Exodus 20, verse 1, God begins to speak. 
And I want to just remind you two things. That the Israelites, the elders of the Israelites, had already committed to come under the authority of God. So what we're getting right here, a little bit of, is these Ten Commandments that we know of. But I need you to know, this was not something he just said. This was something they had agreed to. And so out of this agreement, this covenant they were coming into, here comes the Ten Commandments. And the second thing I want to remind you is this: God is speaking these. He is speaking these in such tones and in such volume that everyone can hear. Not just Moses and Aaron up top, but all those thousands and thousands of people at the base of the mountain can hear. And he begins like this. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let me stop there. I want to tell you a little bit about what I think God's communicating here. First of all, he's telling all those Israelites, I I just want to jog your memory because I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Because you were in slavery and now, look, you're here. You're here at the mountain and you are free. There's There's no bondage with you. And he says, I want you to know, I am the one. I want to remind you, the Red Sea, that was me. The water from the rock, that was me. The manna, that was me. Everything, that was me. I brought you out of here. And then he says something else. He says, I am the Lord your God. Let me tell you why this is significant. They had just left a country, Egypt, that was polytheistic. That means they had many gods. So they had a God for sun, a God for the moon. They had a God for rain. They had a God for wind. They had a God for fertility. They had a God for all these different things. In fact, not just Egypt, all the neighboring nations, they were all polytheistic. And so now God is saying something to them, and he is explaining something that's really a dramatic. It's like a huge paradigm shift for their thinking. He's saying, I want you to know, I am your God. If you need sun, I'm your God. If you need wind, I'm your God. If you need rain, I'm your God. And here's the other thing he's telling them. I love this. He's letting them know. I want you to know, since I'm your God, my heart is towards you. It is towards you. I want you to know, because I'm in this covenant with you, I want you to know, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to love you because my heart is toward you. He wanted them to know up front, before I get ready to tell you what I need from you, I want you to know what you've got from me. You've got my whole heart. It is towards you because I am your God. And then he goes on in verse 3. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. This is very interesting because, see, God just explained to them the direction of his heart, and now he's saying, here's the direction I need your heart to be in. I need your heart to be going in my direction. Because the Israelites had already agreed to obey and pledge their allegiance to him. And he is saying, because my love is so great for you, I do not want to share your love, your affection, or your worship with anyone or anything else. And then because our God is so specific, he's going to describe a little bit. And he goes on in verse 4 and 5, and he says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, here's that word. That word jealous that sent Oprah Winfrey listed on the Forbes list as one of the most richest people and women in the world. It made her decide she needed to search for a different God. You see, in Scripture, it depicts this relationship between God and the Israelites like a marriage. 
like a husband loves a wife. That's why whenever you read the Old Testament and you see how the Israelites began to worship other gods, it was considered spiritual adultery. The book of Hosea is all about that. See, in this moment, when God is saying to them, I don't want you to bow to anything else. I want your whole heart. He's communicating to them. I need you to know, I love you like the most affectionate husband would for his wife. And I do not want to share your heart, your affection, or your worship with anything else. Because I think if we're honest, when you decide to get married or if you've gotten married, the whole idea was you, you chose that person or you're going to choose that person because you believe that they're going to love you with their whole heart, right? I mean, nobody signs up hoping they can share their spouse's heart with someone or something else, right? I mean, nobody wants to do that. And I was thinking about this in terms of my life because um, just like you guys, when we got married, we kind of got married thinking like our hearts would be towards each other. And I want you to know throughout our marriage, there have been times where one or the other, one of us would come to each other and say, hey, I kind of feel like I don't have your whole heart. And when we first got married, we had this really cool opportunity. We lived in a basement apartment. It was in Woodstock, and it was in this neighborhood. But what was really cool about it was it was on this lake that had a slalom course, and my husband is a skier. He thought we had died and gone to heaven. And he, these folks that owned this lake, they befriended him. They knew that he skied. And so we got married in May, and so June was my last quarter of school at Georgia State. And so at night, I was working on homework. And so Glenn would run in from the house after work. He would grab him something, and he would eat it on the way down to the dock to catch the boat so he could ski with those guys. And they would ski till about 9.30. It was summertime. They would clean the boat up, and then they would talk for sometimes between 30 minutes and an hour. And it was going well. I and mean, we'd only been married like a month, and it was all good. But then after a while, I began to become jealous of this lake because I felt like I didn't have his whole heart all of a sudden. So he came home one night and I said, hey, I just want to tell you, I don't feel like I have your whole heart. I feel like it's a little divided. And he said, no, that's not true. He said, let me tell you the deal is. He says, we have this small basement apartment and I know how you are. You are a person who studies in silence and he is completely correct. Like for Christmas this past year, I considered buying me those Bose ear silencers because I thought it would help block out my kids. Um, I was thinking, hey, and so I remember like reading reviews, going, I wonder how well that would work. Could it block them out if they're fighting? Could I still study? You know, because they live with me, so I can't get a rape from them, you know. But I'm just saying, I like silence. And so Glenn said, I know you like that. And we had this small, and there's nowhere I can go here that you cannot hear me. So I just thought I would, it works out great at summertime, and I could just go ski and do something I love, and you could have the silence that you need. And he said, but here's the deal. If, if you know a night that you're not going to be studying, hey, I don't need to go. And I was like, oh. And then I learned I really did have his whole heart. But here's the deal. God loves us just like a marriage, like a husband loves a wife. And just like we have his whole heart, he is jealous for our whole heart. And I want to read you guys something by John Piper. God is not jealous like an insecure employer who fears that his employees might get lured away by a better salary elsewhere. God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl, just a common person, from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, a queen. God 
God desires our whole heart in worship. He does not want to share us with anything. And let me tell you something. He is not jealous of anything we have here because the word of God says that he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. So there's nothing you can have that he's jealous of, but he is jealous for your heart and he wants all of it. And here's why I think this is really important because this is what I know that God knows. We become what we worship. The direction of our heart and the time that we invest in things is what we become. And he knows that if this group of Israelites, if you and I are going to be a people that are the salt and light of the earth, if we want to be like God, then we can only worship him. And I began to look at that scripture where it talked about, you know, carving something that looked like the sky. And I started thinking, you know, I don't know about y'all, but I don't think we're a woodworking bunch. Like none of us are going to carve a fish and start worshiping it. That's not what we're going to do. We're not going to carve a bird or a cloud and start worshiping it. But I began to think, What in our life today is competing, is God competing with, for our attention and our affection? And I think it has a lot to do with technology. A couple of months ago, I was doing research for something else, and I ran across a man by the name of Dr. Gary Small. Not Gary Smalley, but Dr. Gary Small. And he is a neuroscientist in California, and... For example, this gentleman figured out that you could do brain scans to detect Alzheimer's before you ever saw any physical ramifications of it. So he's brilliant, and he is all about the brain, and he does studies all about the brain. And in 2009, they did this study, and they determined that the average person, which could be us, spends eight and a half hours a day either in front of a TV, in front of a video game, in front of a smartphone, in front of a computer. And I want you to know, when I read that, I thought, oh, I think that is possibly what is competing with your attention, God. Because I don't know about you, but the first thing I do in the morning is I check my phone. And the last thing I do at night is check my phone. Or maybe you're somebody who spends a lot of time on Facebook, update your status, checking people out. Or maybe you just surf the web because I can do that for hours. And I began to think, Lord, what is it in us that's, that makes you not have our whole heart? Because what I've learned from my past is that sometimes it is not things that you think. When I was growing up, we did not have cable TV. I would like to make it clear, it is not because cable TV was not around, okay? <laughs> my dad would just not buy it. In fact, we did not have a remote control well, actually, we did. It was my sister and I, okay? But that, but that is just, we didn't have any of that stuff. In fact, I remember when I moved out, they got a VCR. And I just thought, that's just mean. That's just mean, Dad. How could you do that? And, and so we didn't have cable. And, and what I figured out about my past, about growing up in my parents' house, is there are a couple things that, because I couldn't have them, I said I was going to have them when I grew up. And so I remember... Being in middle school thinking, when I grow up, I don't care what it's going to cost. I'm going to get as many cable channels as I can because I really want a cable. So sure enough, I sort of grew up. I got married. We bought this house, and I don't know if you remember what it was like to buy your first house or if you've ever, if you've ever bought a first house, but for us, it was literally just getting every single penny together we had just to buy it, just to get in. And just so you know, it was like we had taken a list of 10 homes that were all dumps, and we figured this was the best one. So we had to like put money into it too. And so Glenn came to me and said, I know you're not going to lose, but we, we can't afford cable right now. And I remember thinking, stay calm. And I said, and he showed me the numbers. He was not making this up. He did not have another agenda. I said, okay, I, I get that. So we lived in this home for five years. 
And then the Lord moved us to Cartersville, Georgia, where the cable, cable company was owned locally, and it was really inexpensive. And guess what? I got cable. I have never been so excited to have a remote control in my hand ever. And at my house, I love to have it in my hand, like still. Like, oh, I'm in charge of that. I'm the girl. Let me have it. And so I remember I would watch four and five shows at one time. Like, it was just like, okay, okay. And so one day, Glenn comes home, and he's, um, he sits next to me on the couch, and he's watching. And so, like, as I'm flipping from, I'm doing four shows this time. And I'm flipping from show to show. And, like, as we get to the next show, since he wasn't here for the first part of the flipping, I had to kind of tell him, hey, this person's doing this. Now this is going on. Okay, this person over here is making this dish. And I was telling him what was going on. And so finally, after a little while, he just started to get up. I said, hey, where are you going? He said, I think I'm become motion sickness from sitting here with you and this cable flipping. So I'm going to have to leave. And I was like, oh, come on. But we had this cable, and I just want, you know, I was so happy, and I loved it, and it was just like my life was complete. And so we had this cable for probably at least nine months, I believe. And our church decided to do something called a building campaign. And a building campaign is this. It is when they come to you, and they say, we decided we need to add on because God's been so good, and here's your packet. You take it home, and you pray about what God wants you to give to this building campaign. So we began to pray about that, and it was like the next week, I was up here at the fire station in Sam Jones, and I distinctly heard God say this. Susie, you should cut your cable and give the money that you would have paid for your cable, give that to the building fund. See, here's the deal. At that time, we were both working full-time jobs, and we didn't have any kids. And I said, Lord, there's no need to cut the cable, because it turns out I have $230 right here in my checking account you can have. So I said, don't go crazy. Really, you can just have this money. So I just thought, well, that is just the silliest thing ever. You think he would have known I had that money, because I thought it was about the money, but it was all about the cable. So two weeks go by, we go to the beach with a group of friends, I am sitting out in this chair, I'm by myself, and I begin to just talk in my head to God about this building fund, because I just thought, you know, turn dollars seriously, Lord, what do you really want from us? So, as I'm sitting talking to God about it, he says in a stern voice, which I often get, you probably can figure out why, and I say to him, God, what do you want us to give to you? And he said, Susie, I've already told you, I want you to cut your cable and give that money that you would have spent on cable next year to God. And I said, Lord, I already told you, you could have the $230. It's like still in my checking account. He said, Susie, I don't want your money. I want your heart. And your cable has your heart right now. You're out of balance. You need to cut the cable. And I remember getting up from my seat and slamming my chair shut. Unbelievable, I didn't get struck by lightning. And just huffing away. Because I really thought you were overreacting. I want you to know, when we cut that cable off, it's like instead of having 24 hours, it's like I now had 40 in a day. Like I had all this extra time. But here's the deal. God wants us to have our whole hearts to him, to worship him only because why? We become what we worship. So it's really important that we're mindful of where, what direction is our heart going in. How much time are we spending on certain things? Because he knows that we become what we worship. Let me share this with you. God's jealousy scares me because I know how far short I fall. It also makes me cry and sing and hardly know what to do with myself when I think of how he loves me. God is jealous for me. God is the prodigal son's father in Luke 15, running out to me, embracing me, kissing me, hardly able to express his joy at having me home. He is the prostitute's husband in Hosea 2, romancing me all over again, betrothing me to tenderness in himself and in love determined to win me back. And he is most of all the man on the cross, dying in victory, claiming and saying out loud, it is finished. 
my sin atoned, my debt paid in full, and my inheritance secured forever. He is a jealous God. He is jealous for his glory, tolerating no rivals, going to every length imaginable to protect the relationship between himself and his creation. You know what's so awesome about what I just read to you? It was written by a 16-year-old girl who lives in California. And I thought, whoo, this is a girl who understands that God is not jealous of her. He is jealous for her. And he desires the best for her. And the only God that can give that to you is our God. That is the only God that can give that to you. Because James 4, 5 says this. He yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Because the truth is, his pursuit of us is seen all throughout the Bible. In every verse, in every chapter, it's all about his pursuit of us. Because he is jealous for us and he loves us so. So the question becomes this. If I understand how much God loves me and that he is jealous for me, what is my response? In light of all this, here's what our response is. It's zeal. Zeal for him. And let me define zeal for, for you. What's interesting is the Hebrew word that we've been talking about today, it actually comes from an, a Hebrew word. The root of it that it comes from is a word that doesn't just mean jealous, but it means zealous for And here's what zeal means. It means great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a person or an objective. Do you see, when I understand in my head and my heart how God loves me, then my natural response is zeal. It is zeal for him, it is zeal for his kingdom, and it is zeal for the lost world that does not know Jesus Christ. Because if we look at the life of Jesus, he was a man who had zeal. Like when he came into the temple and he turned over the tables because the money changers were in there. And when he did that, the disciples thought, hey, I remember in the Old Testament it's saying he will have zeal for, his, for your house, God. It's going to consume him. And in John 4, 24, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Because if we understand this jealousy, how he loves us and his jealousy is for us in any sense, zeal is our automatic response. Acts 20 says this, verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the grace, the gospel of the grace of God. See, I think when we understand this, then all of a sudden, we just have begin to have a zeal. We begin to live life exactly where God's put us. Maybe it's single, maybe it's married, maybe it's not married, maybe it's with kids, maybe it's married or having kids but being single. But we begin to look and think, Lord, how can I live in a way that brings glory to you and is pleasing to you? How can I do this ministry that you've called me to? Because the truth is, every one of us here has a ministry. Every one of us here, according to Romans, has an irrevocable call on their lives that God has called for you to do in your lifetime. How do we do that? We do it because we understand how he loves us and he's jealous for us. Because the truth is, he is too amazing and his gospel is too good to just be an afterthought or anything other than the goal and glory of our lives. Zeal for him. 
John Piper says it this way, and I, I love this quote because it's like the silver lining. He said, but those, for those of you who have been truly united to Christ and who keep your vows to forsake all others and cleave only to him and live for his honor, for you, the jealousy of God is a great comfort and a great hope. Since God is infinitely jealous for the honor of his name, anything and anybody who threatens the good of his faithful ones will be opposed with divine omnipotence. Isn't that incredible? Man, when we just choose Jesus, we just come under his banner. Jehovah Jireh, that, that word name of God means the Lord is my banner. And when we come under his banner, it's like when anything, when the enemy comes to oppose us, I need you to know they have to meet with opposition from the Lord. Because he is not just jealous for his name, he's jealous for those who bear his name. And because of that, at every turn, he will oppose with his divine omnipotence those that come against us as a church. So if we know that, there's no reason to be scared and not be zealous for him. Because we know in every case he's got our back. He is jealous for us. Not of us, but for us. And he wants our whole heart because we have all of his. And he knows that we become the very thing we worship. And out of that understanding, man, our only response is just zeal. Zeal for him, zeal for his kingdom, and zeal for those around us who do not know him. Let's pray.